All right. Well, uh, good to be with you as we continue um, opening God's Word. Keep your Bibles open at 1 Thessalonians as the, at the passage that Aaron was reading out to us. We'll be looking for it through it as we go. Now, um, uh, as we begin, I want to ask you this question. Are you um, more of an optimist or more of a pessimist? Yeah, are you more of an optimist or more of a pessimist? Do you, try to, uh, do you tend to see things in the positive even in trying situations, or do you quickly see the negative in things? Uh, it's one of those questions that's always fun to find out about other people, isn't it? Now, uh, I really just want to get a sense. Like, hands up if you reckon you are more of an optimist. Oh, okay. Hands up if you're more of a pessimist. I reckon it's about 50-50. Interesting, right? Now, um, I'm personally a little bit more of a pessimist um, than an optimist, um, but the research on optimism is really interesting, right? In the world of psychology... Um, it says there's a lot going for the optimist, right? Being an optimist, according to a bunch of varying studies, apparently helps a range of different things, such as uh, if you're an optimist, it can help reduce feelings of sadness and even depression and anxiety. Uh, being an optimist helps um, provide coping skills. Right? Being an optimist can help you handle stressful situations better, which is better for your body, um, it can create physical and mental resilience, right? Even for traumatic life or medical situations. Uh, physically, it can help your heart health and as well as your immune system health. So, and apparently, if you're an, the optimism is something that you can actually train yourself to get better at. So who would have thought all those things, right? There are all these benefits to thinking optimistically. Now, I bring all this up um, not because I think we should all become optimists, uh, but because I think it would be fair to say that people who are open to faith, a faith of any kind, not just Christianity, would probably categorize faith um, through a lens of optimism, if that makes sense. Right? So having a faith, the thinking might go, um, will help um, you have a better outlook. Yeah? Uh, it, it will help you feel more fulfilled. It might give you a purpose in life. And surely, if you have those things, that will boost positive thinking. Right? Faith uh, makes you feel more hopeful. Faith li helps lift your spirits. Help faith gives you something to look forward to. And I wonder, um, does gospel hope look like that for you? Is that the way you think about gospel hope? Is the hope of the gospel a resource to help you to think optimistically? Right? What's the difference between gospel hope and optimism, if there's any difference? Now, I want to suggest for us this morning that gospel hope should go far further, yeah, far further than optimism. Because as helpful as optimism is in the world of psychology, as great as the benefits of optimism might be, the unique hope of the gospel is a gift from God to His people that if His people embrace properly, that will leave optimism in the dust. I'm not exaggerating when I say that gospel hope should change absolutely everything in our life. Now, if you're joining us today, if you're visiting, whether online or in person here, we're at the end of a five-week series, right? All about how the gospel transforms life, both individually, but also collectively, collectively as a church, as we come out, out of lockdown, right? The desire behind this series is that we don't want to whimper back to being a shell of ourselves, we don't want to return to just what we were before lockdown. Right? The elders and pastors' desire is for the gospel to compel us, yeah, to compel us and transform us 
so that we come back stronger, healthier, and a more God-glorifying church. And we pray that you are praying for the same. And so today, as we conclude our series thinking about gospel hope, um, just in light of the situations in, in the last couple of weeks, we sure need it, don't we, that gospel hope? And with Omicron, with the paradigm shift in learning to live with the virus, with forecasts of up to 25,000 cases per day by the end of January, we need hope, specifically gospel hope, yeah, in spades. And so just as a roadmap for us today, Aaron already mentioned it, there's an outline available digitally at, with the link go.swec.org.au slash um, uh, outline. That's a skeleton outline. There'll be a more detailed outline on the screens. But we've got two main points today, yeah? The first point is the basis and details of our hope. And the second point is the present experience of our hope, yes? Yeah? The basis and details of our hope and the present experience of our hope. Uh, why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, be with us now as we come to your living and breathing word. Would it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? Would you lead us to live according to your ways? We ask this for Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, friends, let's look at our first point, the basis and details of our hope. Yeah, the basis and details of our hope. Now, um, part of why Paul wrote the letter to the young church in Thessalonica is because the first century church had some pretty understandable questions that they wanted to ask. You see, they'd only recently come to faith, and the Apostle Paul taught them that Jesus is going to return. He's not just risen and, and ascended, he's going to return. But since their conversion, some of the believers have passed away, they've died. Now, of course, us being in the 21st century, we've seen generations of believers pass away, so it's not anything new for us. But for these, this young church, this is new for them, yeah? So, of course, they'd be asking, hey, well, what about those guys? What happens to them? We don't want them to miss out when Jesus returns. It's, it's a pretty worrying situation for the Thessalonian church. So how does Paul respond to their question? Well, he responds by saying, have a look, verse 14. He says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, Paul's saying, if you trust that Jesus died and rose then in the same way, God will bring those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus back with him. You don't have to worry about those who have died already because not only will they be there, they will be there when Jesus returns, when he does. Right? To put it another way, why don't they need to be worried? Well, because the basis of their hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The basis of all gospel hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's probably unhelpful, I think, when we use the word hope, because hope, at least the way we um, use it most often, has um, uncertainty built into it, yeah? It's, uncertainty is built into the fabric of how we use the word hope. We, we say, I hope I get that job, or I hope our holiday doesn't fall through, or I hope our kids aren't bawling their eyes out in Sunday school at the moment, right? right? It's unhelpful because when the Bible speaks about hope, it's actually the complete opposite, right? Because the Bible um, says gospel hope is all about certainty, not uncertainty. Gospel hope finds its foundation, finds its basis in the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we become united with his death and resurrection. And Jesus didn't rise to not come back. He rose so that all who belong with him will rise as he does will reign as he does, and will return as he will. 
See, the Christian hope is more like hoping for summer when it's in the middle of winter, although our summer is pretty wet and dreary at the moment. But it's kind of like that, right? Summer will certainly come even when we're in winter. It's only a matter of time. Now, I once heard um, Philip Jensen, for those of you who know who he is, he's a pretty gifted preacher. He preaches about some pretty difficult subjects. He says that the logic of the gospel is actually, you know, quite simple. Yeah, the logic of the gospel is actually quite simple. People can sometimes make it really complicated. You know, Christians can be especially be like that at times. But the logic really is very simple. If you, it's just three questions, really. The three questions are this. Did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? Did Jesus rise again? That's the logic of the gospel. If the answer to those three questions is yes, well, we know what lies ahead for us then, don't we? And if not, if it's not true, well, we should be pitied because our hope is based on lies. If the answer to those three questions is yes, it's incredible if it's true. If the answers are yes, it's remarkable if it's true. It's also why a child is able to have profound and deep faith because really the, the logic of the gospel is a simple line of questioning. And that's pretty much what, the Paul, what Paul is saying to this church at Thessalonica. He's, he's asking them, do you believe Jesus died? Do you believe Jesus rose? Because if you do, you'll know that Jesus is risen and he will return and those that have died in him will come with him. You see, friends, that's why gospel hope is far better than optimism. Because optimism, if we can just be honest for a second, optimism can be completely irrational. Right? Optimism is remaining positive in spite of uncertainty. Yeah, But gospel hope is certain. Because of the return of Jesus is certain, because it's bound up in his life, death, and resurrection. For us, it's only a matter of time. And so, just by the way, if you are here, if you're watching this and you don't call yourself a Christian, we're glad you're here with us. We've got people coming regularly to, to, to investigate the claims of Christianity. But can I just suggest that while there are probably many questions that should be asked and are definitely worth asking, the questions, did Jesus live, did Jesus die, did Jesus rise again, they should be right at the top of your list because they are at the heart of the Christian faith. And we'd love to explore those questions with you as well as all the other questions you might have with you this Christmas, if you'd like. But coming back to the passage, what, um, so we've looked at the basis of Jesus' return. What are the details? Yeah, What are the details of Jesus' return? What will take place when Jesus returns? Well, Paul does give us some details. He goes on. He says both what to expect and what not to expect. So what should we expect? Oops. Yeah, what should, what should we expect? Now, Paul goes on from verse 15 to say, well, according to God's word, we who are still alive, those alive at Jesus' return, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with, trump, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise first. And only after that, those who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. See, what's Paul saying? Paul is saying that according to God's word, when Jesus returns, all who belong to Jesus will be with him. Right? None of his, dead or alive, is going to miss out. Right? Just as Jesus is transformed right now in his resurrection body, so will both the living and the dead. The dead will be raised in theirs. The living will be transformed as we dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we should expect when Jesus returns. Now, when I was at college, um, we heard um, about a missionary who um, uh, was working um, and witnessing in West Africa.
And he was, he was there as a, a, a Bible college teacher, a lecturer, right? And he was teaching on the second coming. And the missionary, he was teaching through our passage today. And, and as he got to the bit about Jesus descending from heaven with a loud command, one of the students put up their hand and they asked, well, hey, sir, um, what's the command going to be? What will Jesus command in a loud voice? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, what is Jesus going to command? I wonder how you might answer that question. Well, before the missionary responded to the question, he just recalled just a few days earlier um, going through a nearby refugee camp. And he thought of the children that he had met who had lost both their parents because of the war. He thought of those who had lost limbs um, from landmines. He thought of those who had endured years and years of malnutrition because of famine. And he considered the pain and the suffering that he saw and experienced that comes from a broken and sinful world. And as he thought about all those things, his reply to this student about what Jesus would command, he said he would probably say enough. Enough. That Jesus, when he comes with trumpet sound, will declare in a loud voice, enough. No more. No more tears. No more shame, no more abuse, no more crying, no more grief, and certainly no more death. Enough. No more. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul is thinking here. I don't know if they're the exact words Jesus will say on that day. But it's theologically true, at least, isn't it? That's precisely what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. That when he comes, we will dwell with him. He will wipe every tear. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Those things are going to pass away and be no more. Friends, is that your hope? That's why, by the way, we need to make a big deal of Christmas each year. Because at Christmas, not only do we reflect and celebrate the miracle of the first coming of Jesus, but as we reflect on the first coming of Jesus, we're also meant to cast our mind and our gaze to his inevitable second coming. Christmas reminds us that just as Jesus came that first Christmas, as was promised, he will certainly come again too. Is that your hope? Is that, is, is that what is on the tip of your tongues in our encouragement to one another? Because that's what the Apostle says in verse 13. He certainly hopes that's the case. See, there is so much that we should expect at Jesus' return. And yet, at the same time, Paul cautions us here about what not to expect about Jesus' return. What not to expect. See, in the first few verses of chapter 5, Paul compares Jesus' return with two pictures. Right? One of a thief and one about pregnancy, right? One of a thief, one about pregnancy. Now, they're helpful comparisons for us as we think about what not to expect because in both cases, the timing isn't known, is it? And that's the reality of Jesus' return, that we just don't know the time and date that it's going to take place. See, one thing that I've learned um, from going to online pregnancy classes is no matter how advanced modern society and modern medicine becomes, an expectant mum can never know precisely when labor's going to begin. Sure, they can guess, they can add, they have an estimate, but it really is just that, it's an estimate. Right? It's an educated one, but it's kind of just a guessing and waiting game. Right? I'm sure Jody, my wife, wishes she knew exactly when labor would begin, just as I'm sure Jeanette wished she knew too. But that's just not the case, is it? 
You might well be in the middle of a shopping center shopping for Christmas presents and if the baby's ready to go, the baby's ready to go. And all you know is the baby will come at some point. That you want it to come, yes, but you've just got to wait till then, yeah? And what about the thief? Um, well, not that we condone stealing, but the whole point of a robbery is to come and go before the victim realizes, yeah? If the robber were to ring the doorbell or give you an advanced letter of notice under your door letting you know the time and date that they're going to come, well, their career as a thief wouldn't be too long, would it? See, the best thieves are those that are gone before you even know that they were there. As Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1, about times and dates, we do not, not need to write to you. He doesn't need to write about it. Because Jesus' return may come in 10 minutes, 10 years, or 10 centuries. Whatever the case, he will come. Like a baby, we just don't know when. And like a thief, probably when we least expect it. Now, Paul gives all this basis and details of the hope to this church and to us as a pastor, yeah? Because he gives it for a purpose. Not so that we take it and we try to decrypt and decode Jesus' return or cause division like studying Jesus' return so often does. No, Paul gives us all this information so that our certain hope of Jesus' return, it actually invades into our present lives. He gives this information in order that our hope impacts our present experiences. And so let's move into our second point, the present experience of our hope. The present experience of our hope. Now, for the sake of time, I want to only focus on two ways the apostle applies that certain hope of Jesus returning to our present experiences. Right? That Jesus' return means we see death differently, um, and his return means that we see life differently too. Now we'll take a look at each in turn. So how does Jesus' return change the way we see death? Change the way we see death. Have another look at chapter 4, verse 13 with me. Chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's important to hear what Paul's not saying here. Paul is not saying when face-to-face with death that we should kind of just, you know, pluck ourselves up and not grieve about it. Paul's not telling us that we've got to be, you know, stone-faced and just plow ahead. Paul's not telling us to dishonestly suppress our feelings. No, Paul's Paul's saying that we should grieve. Death should always cause us to grieve. But because we know Jesus is um, risen and returning, we're told we don't grieve the same way. That's the difference. We don't grieve the same way. We grieve, just not the same way. Have a listen to one minister's reflections about funerals. Follow along. He writes, I cannot describe the blank despair written large on the face and bearing of those who attend funerals where there's no gospel hope. In some traditions, the despair at a funeral is magnified by unending wails and laments of mourners. But in decisively Christian funerals, the atmosphere is palpably different. The tears are still there. The grief is no less profound. The sense of personal loss may be devastating, but somehow there is no grim despair. See, friends, the believer in Jesus' resurrection and return, they cry, they mourn, they grieve over death, and they should. But they cry, they mourn, they grieve with tears of hope. 
See, the grief of somebody without that gospel hope, if I can be a little bit bold for a second about a pretty difficult topic, I think it often goes one of three ways, right? People who grieve without hope grieve, I think, one of three ways. Some grieve without hope by living in denial. They live in denial. They might acknowledge that death, to borrow the words from the Lion King, is just a part of the circle of life. Right? A world where the lion eats the antelope and at some point die, the lion dies and then they become fertilizer to the very grass the antelopes eat. Right? Death is just a part of life and nothing to be feared. It's a beautiful picture, and Lion King's a beautiful movie, but when it is tested with reality, it just doesn't quite work, does it? You try telling somebody who has lost their best friend of 20 years that they've got no need to fear because their best friend is now fertilizing the plants. That's not going to go too well for you, I promise you. Or more seriously, try telling the parents and communities of those four children who died in the tragic jumping castle accident in Tasmania this week that, hey, death is just natural. See, it just doesn't square up with the jarring reality of such devastating loss, does it? Denial of death is just a very disturbing form of grieving without hope. The other way that people grieve without hope is you know, by trying to make everything light and uplifting and positive when somebody dies. And they do that by trying to celebrate their life of the person who's passed away. And so they'll have a ton of different eulogies and stories and speeches to remember them by. But you know what actually happens when, when, when there's all these eulogies and stories is the opposite takes place. The opposite becomes true. Because it just deepens the grief. Why? Well, if the eulogies and platitudes, if they're true, all it does is remind everybody who's there, who's listening to it, of how great their loss is. How much that that person will be missed. Or if the platitudes and eulogies aren't true, well, it'll just seem awkward, it'll seem foolish, because everybody sitting there knows that it's just not true. In either case, it deepens the grief. Trying to make things light is just another example of grieving without hope. And the third way people grieve without hope, and probably the most common, is to grieve with despair. To grieve like a loved one is lost forever and a part of you goes with them. And to grieve in such a way that is long and painful and something that you never quite recover from. This is, what the world, this is how the world grieves, as people without hope. But friends, as Paul makes clear, if we trust in the resurrection and return of Jesus, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Gospel hope is able to sustain us and stand with us in the face of death in such a way that death's sting, it just feels different. Why? Well, for those who trust in Jesus, death is in our end. Resurrection and reunion with Jesus and all those who belong to him in glory, that's our end. See, his return completely turns upside down how we see death. To quote Pastor Tim Keller, who himself is facing stage four pancreatic cancer at the moment, because of Jesus, he writes, we can grieve with hope. We can wake up and be at peace. We can laugh in the face of death. We can sing for joy at what's coming. Because if Jesus has you by the hand, you can sing. And so we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because if Jesus has you by the hand, we can sing. But the return of Jesus doesn't just affect the way we see death. Yeah? It also impacts the way we see life. Yeah? It impacts the way we see life. And that's where Paul really takes us for the rest of our passage today. 
Right? See, if Jesus is certainly coming back, and we know that he will, well, Paul goes on to say from chapter 5, verse 4, well then, if he's really coming back, you're not in the dark about it anymore. Because verse 5, you are all children of the light and of the day. You don't belong in the dark. So verses 6 to 7, while people live asleep or live in a drunken state to this truth, when they don't quite know or are ignorant about what will take place, we should, as people who know what is to come, we've got to be awake. We've got to be sober. And so we should, verse 8, practice and put on faith, love, and hope like armor or our uniform because, verse 9, we've been appointed to be saved because, verse 10, Jesus died for us so that we may live together with him. Right, so in a nutshell, what's Paul saying? That was very fast, but in a nutshell, what's Paul saying? If we know that Jesus is really returning, you know what? Live as if he will. If Jesus is really returning, live as if he will. Um, one of the things that I have a love-hate relationship with is riddles. Riddles. Right? See, riddles are fun if you can work out the answer. But riddles are no fun at all if you can't figure it out and you stay clueless about it all. See, no matter how many times people say to me over a bonfire, usually, hey, Dom, 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 um, it's so obvious. Um, let me do it again for you in slow motion. You'll get it. Trust me, you'll get it this time. Ready, ready? How many horses are there? All it does is increase my frustration levels. Right? Now, some of you are going to be trying to work that out for the rest of the sermon. I'm sorry for that. But riddles really show that being in the know, it changes things, right? It changes things, doesn't it? And that's why the pregnancy and the thief comparisons Paul makes are pretty helpful as well. See, knowing the baby's going to come, even if you don't know exactly when, means that you don't go hop on a plane when you're close to being due. Right? It means that it's probably worth buying a few things for the baby to sleep in, to wear in, to poop in. Right? It means it's probably a good idea to chat with some people so you know what to expect. Right? Knowing that theft is possible, um, even if you're unsure if it might take place, means that you might stall an alarm in the house, or you might change the locks, or you might put some cameras up. Right? In both cases, knowing means that you can get ready. Knowing makes all the difference in everyday life. See, most of the world have no idea, Paul says. They're either asleep or like they're drunk and don't get it. But because we're saved by Jesus, that's not us. We're in the know. We're awake. We're sober, according to Paul. And if that's the case, then our present, everyday, ordinary lives ought to be dedicated to being alert and ready for when he comes. We should live lives as if Jesus is actually going to return, because he is. And friends, there is no hope more enduring and more worthwhile to commit our lives to. Like the last two years with the pandemic, it's really been a testament to that, right? So many of our hopes these last two years have been put to the test. Our hopes of stability, our hopes of certainty, our hopes of a government and health authorities that will lead us to the very best outcome. Our hopes in leisure, pleasure and travel, our hopes of long-term good health, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg They've all been put to the test these last two years, haven't they? And in very real ways, over the past two years, each hope has proven frail and fragile. And yet, even as we individually come to a new year, relaunch to a new year, and as we do the same as a church, as we do the same really as a society, there's a yearning, I think, to return to those very same hopes, those very same things, even after we've seen how, just how fragile they are. I see it in myself. Maybe you see it in yourself too. Right? See, the thought for me, at least, goes something like this, yeah? I'm assuming good health and no accidents, 
which is admittedly a pretty big assumption, I've got maybe 40 or so good years left. Yeah, 40 or so good years left. Now, that sounds like a long time, and it sort of is. But if my mindset believes that that's all I've got, well then, increasing my wealth for security for my family is important. Having memorable holidays and traveling overseas is really important. Maximizing the comforts that I have, uh, uh, living in proximity to the coast, being as happy as I can possibly be, having a good position to be in for when I eventually retire many, many years down the track. Right? Those years become really important, don't they? If, that's, if all I've got is 40 or so years and that's it, they're what really matters, pandemic or not. That's what's front of mind. But that's not the case, is it? I don't just have 40 or so years. Because we know if Jesus is resurrected, reigning and returning, if that is our hope, one that will never falter or fail, one that is firm and not fragile, if we know that it will certainly take place, whether it's in 10 minutes, 10 years or 10 centuries, then all those other lesser hopes, they inevitably begin to matter less, don't they? See, knowing Jesus will return makes all the difference. Because suddenly what really matters is that we're with him. And the days that we've been given are spent preparing, being sober-minded, alert, and ready for that day. And so, friends, as we relaunch, let's throw our lives with our eyes fixed firmly on that hope. I'll get the band to come up. But let's, let's, let's throw our eyes with our eyes fixed firmly on that hope. Would we warn those who are cold and sleepy in their faith that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night? Would we encourage those who grieve, those who have lost loved ones, who have died with Christ, that Jesus will come and they will come with him? Would we declare the certain and good news that Jesus came to live, die and rise and will return to judge? Would we nurture and raise our families in the knowledge that Jesus is returning? And would we put on and practice faith, hope and love and live lives of such holiness because Jesus died for us and is returning for us so that we may live with him. Dear friends, gospel hope really does leave optimism in the dust, doesn't it? Optimism only goes so far because it is hope without certainty. Friends, did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? Did Jesus rise again? If he did, will surely return. And if he did, we can live in hope, grieve with hope, and die in hope. Now let me close in prayer for us with the words of the psalmist from Psalm 33. Heavenly Father, to wait in hope for the Lord. For you are our help, you are our shield. In you our hearts rejoice, for we trust in your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.